Hi everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show for another week. It's great to be back with you. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. We're up to episode 12, which still, every time it creeps up, even though it just goes up by one each week, it still seems kind of crazy that we're still doing this, but we're still having lots of fun. So we're going to start, as we always do, with the news of the week, and I think that's from you this time. Lisa, what is coming our way this week? Okay, it's a really exciting article. Some of you may have seen it because it was in um, quite a number of Sunday papers. It's called Boom Time for Corporate Childcare in Australia. Those of you who know me well would know that corporate childcare actually isn't my favourite sorts of childcare. And this article is really interesting because it talks about the one billion in profits that private childcare operators are draining from their system. And it just goes through, um, you know, uh, where that money's going, who it's going to. It talks about the landlords that's making a lot, making a lot of money. It talks about the uh, you know, how much parents are paying at $190 a day in some inner city areas and talks about whether money should be um, being drained off by corporate providers like that. So it's, yeah, it's interesting, lots of good stats. Um, It's created quite a bit of online comment in the media. Um, So I think everyone should read it. It has, it's also... um, got a really poignant bit in it for me because the last paragraph, it points out that schools aren't allowed to run on a for-profit basis. So why do we allow um, childcare centres to or early education and care centres to? And that's something I've been banging on about for about the past 10 years. So it was the first time that I've ever seen it in that point made in mainstream media out of my own media articles. I agree, and Lisa, I think it's good that it's coming up for main, coming up for debate in mainstream media because I think it is something that is a bit of the elephant in the room. I mean, I think there's often discussion about private versus um, not for profit, and the the issue gets very confused. And when it's highlighted around the very large um, profits that are being made in corporate childcare and essentially through a subsidy system, it takes that discussion to a different level that we actually need to have in this country. Yeah, and I think um, it's it's going to be one to watch. I mean, because you're right, Lisa, I mean, I, uh, something I've written a bit about and, and read a lot about over the last little while, I think it's going to come, it's going to reach a pretty critical point in the next few years for a couple of reasons. There's obviously the rise of particularly um, G8, which is now approaching, what, 450 centres, which is pretty big. And they're making $88.6 million a year. Yeah, and this is not to um, have a go specifically at uh, any individuals within there, but this is approaching the numbers we saw with ABC uh, Learning, which is obviously a pretty uh, horrendous moment for the sector, so that we need to consider that. But then to uh, Kate Ellis in her National Press Club address, you know, sort of, took this on which said we need to is it is it okay that we're essentially as taxpayers subsidizing profits for a lot of these huge organizations they're going to be very big questions and i particularly like this article because i just think it was a really good summary of some of those things i've been thinking about for a long time and um i'll definitely keep an eye on the author of that piece whose name i've now completely forgotten but it was a very good kelsey 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 Munro. really good summary of those issues and i understand um that she's going to be doing some more on the issue as well there you go because it is something that we've spoken about not in great depth before and it will be good for us to do that up ahead i'm sure we will when we've got the um when we put it on the the main agenda but it is that historical um, development of childcare in this country that needed to happen in the private space because we weren't able to um, consider it being a public development of of early childhood education and childcare and it's something that needs to be debated around the issues that were highlighted, particularly around schools not being able to make profits. So why should early childhood education be in the business of making a profit? Mm, def- For sure. Definitely. I think this, just before we go off at Loom, there's two points that I think are really interesting. One is that 
we have a new kind of thing happening in our sector now, which isn't corporate providers, but private equity providers. So one of our corporate providers, Affinity Education, um, delisted. It's no longer a corporate provider and it was purchased by a um, private equity firm. And what they are is quite complex and I could go into a lot of detail, but it would take all night. But it just means that we have a lot of private investors, uh, often from offshore, often from America, now investing in our childcare services. And the other thing is that G8, um, G8's books, when you, I have a friend, or um, I think all of us have a friend who spends a lot of time digging around in the books of um, corporate providers. And he keeps pointing out that more and more of G8's um, assets are goodwill. Whether or not you can actually have real goodwill for a childcare centre is something to be debated because it's not some a childcare centre licence isn't something that you can sell. But one of the interesting things is that. ABC Learning had kind of the level of goodwill to other assets that G8 has now, as far as I understand it. So obviously, you know, uh, G8 you know, may go down a completely different route, but um, I'm just hoping that the federal government's aware of that level of goodwill that's in there. Definitely one to watch. I mean, better move on before it becomes one of our main topics for tonight because we've probably got enough to, to chat about. But yes, we will most certainly be uh, coming back around to that topic. But let's move on to our first uh, discussion point for today, which is, I guess, kind of in, well, I mean, it's a, probably a good discussion for any time, but I guess informed by a lot of recent uh, political events and uh, certain people being elected uh, president-elect and... Oh, Liam, and, can you still not say his name? I still... I, no, not at the moment. It's still not going so well, but... Um, Do you mind if Leanne and I kind of occasionally you, say the T word? You might have to. That's it. I understand. That's all right, if you need to. Um, but we sort of wanted to talk about, and, and there's been a, bit of, a little bit of media about this probably just in the last couple of days as we record this, but... Um, I guess the, the topic is sort of, you know, uh, touchy topics with children and p- particularly sort of political uh, discussions. So engaging on politics with young children, I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to this chat because I think I'm I'm not entirely sure what I think about it and I think I'm going to work through it while chatting with you two wonderful people. But um, I guess we'll start with our first question is, you know, the obvious one, should, should educators in services be talking uh, politics with children or should we be avoiding some of these contentious topics where you know families or educators or the community might have very very wildly divergent views what do you I might go to you first Leanne what do you think well no I don't think that you can avoid talking about it I think that it's really important that children do engage in conversations about the everyday and politics is part of that Um, I think that everything needs to be contextualized and that's kind of probably the second part of our discussion about how we do that but the thing with politics is it does have an impact on our everyday lives. And I've been reading this wonderful work of someone called Chemist, and he says that the dual purpose of education is to prepare people to live well in a world worth living in. And that is a really fundamental statement around politics. If we're going to have well, children... the American education system sure failed, didn't it? <laughs> but we Lisa. Sorry. <laughs> Don't traumatise Liam tonight, please. <laughs> but, it's, um, but politics has so much to do. It has such an impact um, on the, our daily lives and also the, the life that we live in the future that I don't think we can avoid talking about it with children and having them form opinions on it and have some sort of uh, express some views as well. But I think in some ways we've got to be apolitical when we raise those issues and anything that is based around human rights, civic participation, citizenship, which politics has everything to do with, we do have to have those discussions with children and as a matter of fact, it's part of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that we do. There's the Article 12, Respect for the Views of the Child and Article 13, Freedom of Expression. So my vote is, yes, we need to talk politics with children and I don't think um, that we need to avoid contentious topics, but I do think they need to be contextualised. Yeah, I think it's 
Yeah, that's actually really well put, Leanne. And it's, uh, I don't know, I might have a, a slightly surprising view on this. Look, I am as lefty as they come to the point where there are topics that are no-go areas for discussions with uh, members of my family because I get so wild up and worked up and can't say the name of the current president-elect of the United States because I'm so still so shell-shocked. I am. I do get slightly worried about... And you'll go right in, it, it, in terms of we're going to discuss that in the next sort of bit is about how we do it. But I think we need to be really careful about um, knowing what we know about children's development, that this is a critical time for their, their uh, learning and development. Are we, are we, we need to be careful we're not pushing things on to children, that we're not uh, necessarily, you know, sort of coming in with a set view that is separate from those things, which is from children's rights and civic participation and things that are critically important to learn which is tolerance and diversity but if we're doing that with a very specific bent and i guess the way i put it is if you know if you're deliberately one of the articles i saw um today and looking again, i i only really quickly read it and I, I, I don't necessarily want to be held to the detail of it was talking about you know people going in uh, teachers and educators coming into schools and early childhood centers and preschools over the last couple of days and hearing things like you know can we kill trump and can we kill him and i just go that that to me is is that is worrying to me. Are we? And I'm not necessarily suggesting educators or teachers. And actually, in that article, teaching educators were responding really positively to that. But that that to me is an appalling for for all that I disagree radically with. Um, you know, you know, probably more than fifty percent of most countries in terms of their political views. The idea that we would ever frame that as that that should be you know people should be harmed or people should be at the end of the day that's democracy people voted for him and people voted for tony abbott and people voted for you know julie gillard and kevin Rudd. like that's that's how democracy works i do worry about what's the balance around how do we do that and are we um and actually and and to be fair i might even introduce and this will might even be particularly contentious with our listeners i might even introduce a left a sort of left version of what i see i do get a little bit I do feel a little bit worried when I see really young children being brought even to things like rallies and things and they're copying or um, just sort of yelling out things they've obviously been taught to say. That that actually worries me slightly. I, I This might be a surprise to people. I wouldn't take my children to something. Or I, I would take them, but I would expect them to do what they wanted to do about it. I wouldn't be indoctrinating them in that way to chant certain slogans or suggest that. I don't know. I'm sort of like I said. I'm sort of working this through as I chat about it because I think it is. It's actually a bit well, trickier than we think it is. Yeah, and I know you're gonna you're gonna throw to Lisa in a minute, but Lisa and I had a conversation about that Trump article today um, via email. I don't think it was very extensive, was it, Lisa? No. <laughs> but I did say that that it's actually about how conversations that adults have with children that has probably impacted on that and then access to media with no filter and, and no context there. And I think that the, the early childhood settings are actually the ones that are doing the, the repair work on some of that, that stuff. So I guess that I, I still believe that that service uh, that early childhood uh, services have a an opportunity to... Um, allow children to be political because they are children are political they do bring their own their own version of the world with them um but it needs to have a context around it absolutely and it's not about presenting your own um you know worldview specifically to those children it's actually about creating the capacity for them to problem solve and understand these things and evaluate them themselves and it's that understanding of yeah of the the personal is political. So that's you know one of the oldest sort of you know political science poli sci phrases out there is that the personal is political. So all the engagements and interactions we have with each other are to some extent political. To me, it's just making sure yeah how do we how do we separate that that fact out from you know advocating a certain specific you know position that you know can be argued on either side. But you know, Lisa, I'm going to assume you of course maybe think we do need to tackle have very this. strong <laughs> version of views on it yeah look um like everything else i need to make it clear that i'm not an educator so i'm you know i'm having a view as to what i think a profession that i'm not part of should do 
Um, I also should confess, Liam, that um, I remember my two-year-old son wandering up and down the hallway saying, MUA, here to stay, <laughs> which was a chant that he'd picked up at a, um, a rally. Going to rallies, going standing up against injustice has been so much of my children's life since a very early age um, that it's just one of those things that we do. It's the weekend, what are you doing? No, not quite that bad, but yeah, it's something that is very much part of our family life. And I'm happy that because of that, I've brought up two children who are very socially aware. Um, I think that most children are aware of politics and I think that, you know, like that particular newspaper article that Leanne spoke about happened in the inner west of Sydney, which is where I live. And I can imagine parents just throwing things at the TV when the person whose name will not be said um, appeared on it. Voldemort? And those children had had taken <laughs> You said that word. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll say Trump back at you. Um, no, it, I think that, you know, children were, would go knowing that. They would have picked up their parents' angst and g- gone in to services the next day. What are you going to do? Ignore that? And also, I think that, that, you know, above all, what we are doing is educating children. Part of that means educating them about politics because politics isn't just the thing that happens in, you know, um, the White House or in Congress or in Senate or in, you know, the House of Reps. Politics is everything. So if you say we're not going to talk about politics with children, then we're not going to talk about social justice. We're not going to talk about racism. We're not going to talk about gender. And, of course, we talk about all of those things. Well, at least I hope we do. And so I think that, you know, you have to extend it. So I just wanted to tell a story that encapsulated, you know, um, uh, what I felt about this issue. It came from an article I read today where a history teacher in the United States, I'm not exactly sure where it was, was suspended um, because he did a lesson which showed the remarkable parallels between the rise of Trump and Hitler. And he was saying, look, if you can find anything incorrect in what I taught, then that's an issue, but it's all based on fact. He was suspended anyway, and he said, I've had Mexican kids come into my classroom and say, hey, Mr Navarro, I might be deported. He said, is it better to see bigotry and say nothing? In my silence, I would be substantiating that bigotry. And to me, that's what happens. If you're not talking about politics, if you're not talking about what happens, if you're not saying this is what's right and this is what's wrong, or at least, you know, um, getting children to form their own opinions about what's right and what's wrong, you are substantiating that bigotry. And I think that's the thing. So that's probably a good uh, sort of way to go into sort of question two, which is, how do we actually fit these discussions into a services program? So if we think that they should be in, and I think we all agree, how do we actually go about it? So, And you kind of hit on something there for me, Lisa, which is um, uh, we, what's the context of that discussion? And particularly, are we teaching about these things or are we teaching these things? It's far better that we, we teach children to be uh, critical and critically reflective of things than say, look, here is my view and I'm right and don't, you know, don't vote for this particular party. What do you? So, in terms of how you're know, introducing stuff, how do we sort of, you know, think we go about that? Uh, I'm happy to have a go at that one, Liam. Go for it. <laughs> um, but I, I think it is that exactly that. It is that critical reflection. It is about helping children to understand, um, you know, so, solve problems, I suppose. And I know that a number of services in Sydney have. Uh, worked on issues around um, refugees and asylum seekers and the way that they have presented that is in, a, in an apolitical way but appealing to children's understanding of human rights and they've and the children have wanted to act on those things and they've written letters to prime ministers and I know sometimes those services actually get into trouble for doing that yeah um, and I, I think you know, it's I, we underestimate children's capacity to understand 
um, these things. And we, of course, we want children to be children, but we want children to be thinking and empathising and understanding their own emotional development. So if these things are around them and, you know, I think we're negligent actually not to um, engage with children and have those conversations. But as you say, Liam, it's not about our view. It's actually about the, the critical thinking and the evaluation and analysis. And I think that every child has a right to do that. What about you, Lisa? What's your sort of and and I know you're you always sort of um said you know make the point that you're not an educator, but you've worked with a lot of centres. You you know your 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 sense of particular social justice is really important. What's your you know feel of how services can engage with these topics? Look, I suppose you know I'm reluctant to talk about that because I don't have that face to face experience, but I've um. Yeah, I've seen people do it very well and I've seen people do it really badly. And I think, like everything, it's often a response to the things that children bring to the centre that children raise, you know. I don't think I'd like a session where we sat round in a circle and we talked about politics, you know. I think it's if children raise it, then you deal with it then and there, whether that be in a small group or whatever. I, um, there was a very interesting article and later some um, shock jock coverage today of the Human Rights Commission's resources on racism saying, oh, you know, this is preschool is too young to be teaching children about racism, etc., and criticising much the same way they criticise when we talk about, um, you know, uh, uh, domestic violence or anything else with children of this age, you know. I think the fact that there's a very um, vocal push against this and that that push comes from the right wing, from um, uh, Australian Christian Association, from very, you know, people with very definite views I think that suggests that, you know, maybe we should actually be looking at it and should working out how to introduce it and how to respond to children's questions. Yeah, and that, that particular one about the um, the National Children Commissioner's resources was uh, interesting because the, the, I think the, 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 the blowback and the, the right-wing attack on that stuff isn't particularly about children's either competence or lack of. It's this thing we talked about a lot last week, um, or the week before last week, about infringing on parents' rights. So parents have the right, for some reason, up until five, and then we're so okay with them going to school. But parents have, only parents can teach that stuff, despite the fact, you know, the article's saying, oh, they're too young, too young. This is exactly the time to be doing that stuff. And it's not, and again, and, and you know, the resources are, are what they are. They're, they're, they're um, you can, you know, argue about the detail of how well, you know, or not, they meet your particular criteria for working or not. I think they're pretty good. They've, they've got, you know, they've got a research backing, and that, and you've got to remember a lot of these resources are aimed at, you know, national approaches. So you're never going to have something that works for every single centre. But I think it's a really good starting point to at least have discussions. But that this is the best time to be doing this stuff. This zero to five space when children who have a, who have both a really strong sense of uh, inherently about justice and fairness. Um, but also not to idolise children, but the children also have a really good understanding of how to twist and turn that, so to use that to their advantage. This is a really important time for their development. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they do. And, they do. and, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I'm never one to put children up on a pedestal because children are as messy and complicated and complex as human beings because Sometimes they are. Sometimes a lot more so. Their filters don't work as yeah, well as but ours do. But they're exactly, but they're exactly, which is why it's fantastic that that space is so important for teaching of these things and, and teaching about these things and not sitting in front of someone and saying don't be racist but talking about what that might be and what that might you know look like and how might that make someone feel and um, teaching through stories and through um, and not you know advocating a political agenda but you know talking about these things at the most important time uh, to be doing it um, but and also also Liam I think um, to not deny the point that some children are in this you know like it's not a um, it's not a scenario. It's not this isn't always academic. a story. Yeah, it's some children happening. are they're actually in circumstances where they need to be advocates, in circumstances where they need to be active. And 
something this week, although it's something to do with a primary school, is um, a hotel that's being planned for Casula in in um, Sydney, which is in the southwest of Sydney, where there's a that that community is really badly affected by um, spending on gambling, and the there's a, an application for a a new hotel with gambling facilities to put be put next door to the school, literally next door to the school. And the school students have acted against it along with the community, a community action group, because they're impacted by it. You know, those those children are directly impacted by what will happen in that community and it will be their families that will be affected. And so I think we need to remember that you know, children are in these circumstances. It's not a case of teaching them for their future experience. It's their experience now that they have to be active and political about. And and children also can't often hear stuff and don't understand it. So, like, we've had circumstances in Australia of children asking in schools if they were going to be deported because they were from another country. Obviously, you know, colliding... Um, Trump's kind of views on immigration with our views on on refugees, or asking, you know, like 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 um, uh, female children asking, you know, like uh, does this mean that a woman can never be become a president? You know, so yeah. you've got to deal with those questions when they come up. Yeah. So uh, we might quickly just go on to one last question, um, and we might try and just do. Uh, you know, reasonably quick answer to this one, so we won't get on to topic two. But we've sort of talked about families' role in this. So, do we, if we're going to have these discussions, and obviously that that that's really general. Obviously, these topics can be broad and diverse. But if we're approaching a touchy topic with children, do we think parents should be alerted? And if so, uh, how? What do you think, Leanne? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's about any um, curriculum or content issues that happen within the early childhood setting. Families are a part of um, everything that happens in a service. This is the community and it has to be raised with them, discussed with them, perspectives and who knows, you might even have a whole community position on this from the early childhood setting. Yeah, I'm I'm not so I'm not so sure about that because one of the um, things in that article about the race stuff today said that parents shouldn't uh, should discuss race with their children, not educators. And I just like to know what like I often hear, read in Facebook groups educators saying, "Oh, our parents wouldn't like it if we discuss this issue with children." And I just think that there's a real belittling of your role as educators. As a parent who had children in early education and care centres from a young age, I wasn't handing over that child for those people to have a dispassionate relationship with my children. I was handing over my child to people who would become part of the community that was growing up that child, that was helping that child grow. If in their space, they found it necessary to talk about politics. I trusted them to do that. Yes, sometimes it would be nice to know that so that if, it, if the question came up at home, I could respond to that. But I don't expect them to get permission from me for everything they're going to discuss with my child. I don't child. think I said that they were going to get permission. I didn't say no, oh, well, sorry, I wasn't... I wasn't I wasn't saying that you were, but often people say, you know, oh, parents wouldn't want me to do that, or I couldn't, you know, I'd have to get, I'd have to alert parents before we speak about those things. Oh, yeah. and it's just kind of like I think that there's this real false dichotomy as to what an educator's role should be in relation to the child. And yeah, and I'm going to take the coward's route and say I agree with both of you. That's fantastic. I think it. <laughs> I, think, I don't think we're we're not disagreeing. You're not disagreeing. I think you've I think no, you've said two not. sides I of the you've, you've said two halves of the argument. I think actually, which I like, which is we. I think, we, I think the, the point is though, Liam, it'd look beautiful in some documentation. <laughs> exactly. I think, and for me, we we in in anything we do. In our work with children, if it was oh, yeah, let's not go there. It has to draw back to the national quality framework, which, as we said last week, so this and and I would really recommend educators memorize this um, section because it 
whenever you're having this argument about family's role in the centre and early childhood, you know, sort of takes away family's rights. So the earliest learning framework specifically acknowledges families as the child's first and most important teacher and that it's a partnership. It's not either or and that that has to be acknowledged and respected and the child is best able to learn when that partnership works. And that, to me... Uh, sort of infers on the the uh, the early childhood centre with the position of authority really in that relationship to to be the ones reaching out and building trust and taking families along with them. I think if you try and do stuff, um, not suggesting people you know if not choosing to notify family about everything, but if you go sort of underground and try to do it that way, that is what will lead to rifts and and lead to ridiculous articles in the Herald Sun. But you're absolutely right, Lisa. It is about positioning that in a way of saying we are the professional qualified educators and this is the approach we're going to take because it's been, and, and for these reasons it's come up from children or this is an important discussion in our community right now. This is how we are going to do it. This And particularly thinking about linking to your um, philosophy. So it's really important when you feel, if your current philosophy doesn't have it to look at reviewing it to include things like whether specifically social justice, and I know for some people it's a bit of a dirty word, but things like teaching tolerance, diversity. And if it's in there, and families sign up for that when they choose to to, to, to go into the centre, they're choosing that that's the philosophy of the centre they want to agree with. So you can actually say, look, this fits in with our philosophy, it fits in with our approach, really happy to talk to you further about it. But So to me it's about saying, look, do it anyway, but try and bring families along with you. I think that's probably the, the neatest way to put it. Cool. Yeah. All right, well, we get to, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with um, topic two, which I'm looking forward to. It's going to be a fun one. So bear with us for a little bit of music and then we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Um, so the background of this topic, just really quickly, are we... Look, I think it's been, we've all been a little bit depressed over the last week or so, and probably I've been dragging things down in our email chats back and forth about working out what our two topics for tonight was going to be. I think we'd we'd pick pretty. So we have our first topic, and we we had another pretty tough topic, I think, for topic two. And I was just seriously going, I think I'm done, people. And um, full credit to Leanne, she actually had a really wonderful idea, which is going to bring a bit of positivity into. Uh, the discussion today. So she said, why don't we pick our favourite bit of research on early childhood education and talk about it? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to eat. All three of us have brought something to the table and we haven't told each other what it is. So I'm actually really looking oh, forward to finding out. I'm excited. Out. I know. It's a bit <laughs> so nerve-wracking, actually. we allowed to laugh at each other? Well, the only, <laughs> no, Lisa, we're only allowed to be supportive professionals. Oh, the only okay. thing I'm worried about now is, I'm, and I'm literally only thinking about this now, is what if two of us have brought the same thing? But ho- look, hopefully oh, not. Impossible. <laughs> hopefully not. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to go uh, Leanne, Lisa, and then me, and then we've got four sort of quick questions, which is who did the research? What are the key uh, learnings? And I hate saying the word key learnings, but that's what's been put on the topic sheet. So I'm going to blame you for that, I think, Lisa. Um, And then application in the sector, so how it is or can be used. And then the other two will sort of ask a couple of quick questions about it. So this is a bit fun. I'm looking forward to this one. Great idea, Leanne. So as it was your great idea, why don't you kick us off? Okay, well, I'm excited about this. I I um, was at a wonderful conference. I was actually speaking at it on Saturday with Blacktown City Council who have absolutely dedicated tons of resources to um, early childhood. So that's very exciting for a council, as we know, Lisa, given the research that um, we've been involved in the, in the past. But that's actually not my research. I listened to a presentation um, by Sheila Degatardi, who is absolutely passionate about infant and toddler language. And this was about language interaction and learning. And Sheila and her colleagues, um, Tor and Han, have undertaken some research. And you'll remember that there's research that is about the number of words that children know when they're in uh, environments, low quality environments versus high quality environments. And that original research was done in the home. And it ranged anywhere between 620 words, which is very low, to 2,150 words an hour, which is high. And they replicated this research in early childhood settings. So they got the infants and toddlers to wear these little vests with recording devices. And I'm going to tell you, they were very snappy little vests as well. And they measured the um, language that was happening, the interactions and the language. And they almost, number for number, 
found exactly the same number. So in some environments, the low end was 626 words, the high end was 2,553 words. So almost replicating that in the early childhood setting versus the home setting, which I thought was pretty remarkable, um, given that it's like 20 years later, this research. So I hope I'm doing this justice too, by the way. So when they analysed it, when they analysed it, they found that at where there were fewer words, the sort of the sort of interactions that were happening were actually, you know, that kind of management language, the instructional language, and at the, where there were this profusion of words, a higher number of words per hour, was actually really content rich. So it was. Um, increasing the children's vocabulary. It was actually that serve and return stuff that happens when you've got rich language environments. And this, I just loved it because it's it's simple stuff around infant and toddler language. When you understand that you can't just talk to children and manage them, you have to have really strong and rich interactions with them. And that's when their language you know, the number of words that they know increases and we know that the number of words that children know um, increases their likelihood of being able to have great relationships, the foundations for reading and for numeracy and, you know, all of those important things in their learning and also just have a better time because they've got great interactions happening all the time. So they were the, the key learnings and the application in the sector. So basically... People need to make their interactions very focused and not just um, think that uh, we're, you know, we're having lots of language learning with uh, young children just because we're talking to them. It's actually what we're saying. Oh, that's a really good one, Leanne. I like that one. Yeah. I want to read it. Is it written up somewhere? <laughs> um, well, they, they, they are... I, I think there's another article being published in AJEC and I'll I'll give the reference to you, Liam, so you can pop it up with the with the podcast. Right. Um, and this one is to be published up ahead. They're just waiting on a final mm-hmm. sign off on the publishing of it. So it's it's gonna it's freshly minted research. But I, I first of all I think it's a wonderful research and secondly, Sheila presented it with such passion. Um, and did a very interesting experiment in the workshop where she uh, asked us to replicate the some of the um, discuss some of the interaction that uh, she'd recorded, so we could see how long the gaps were between the um, between the interactions. And it was excruciating mm. because it was so long and there was just a real lack of content there. So it was, yeah, it was very interesting. Oh, the, the Leanne, lang- yeah, the language stuff is amazing. Mm. Leanne, was there any correlation done between the ones where there weren't many words said in their writings? Um, I think that that is the piece of the puzzle, Lisa. I think that it is about that um, quality and it's certainly not... Um, Sheila wasn't talking about that, but that was also my assumption. And I'm, I, I would be interested to go back and look at those services and see what the ratings were. Mm. But I think there, there could be, you know, some assumption that the rating would be low in terms of the relationships there. One would hope you so. Would hope. I love yeah. that. So, yeah. yeah, I think what that immediately makes me think of, Leanne, and I, I feel a bit bad that you're, the research you're bringing just makes me think of other research, but it, it has. Um, there's some fantastic stuff there about um, that particular, that first uh, roughly 12 months of a child's life, which is what they call, it's not a great term, but it's kind of like offline language. So they're not speaking, but they're absorbing all this language and the importance of using really rich language in that space. So another, which is yeah. another reason to ban and destroy that baby talk. So goo goo, I can't even say because it, it makes me so, it makes me twitchy and angry that it actually, yeah, well, yeah, it actually right. harms and- children. And that was one of Sheila's points was that it is about um, delivering that language in, you know, in, in a sophisticated way. It's it's not yeah. about having having the baby talk. So it was um, very... Mm, uh, hang on, hang on. Surely someone, you know, there is some function in baby talk because it's mimicking what the child is saying. I don't think that's what Liam's talking about. You're not talking about baby's language. You're talking about the... Adults the, talking um, to children. Yeah, adults yeah, objectifying children's yes. language. Yeah. Okay. 
repeating it. Yeah, I know what you're saying, Lisa, but what the research says is the best thing to do is is to talk back to them and say, oh, are you saying this? Are you saying... I feel like I'm lecturing you now, Lisa. That's not very good. Sorry. But um, (laughs) you're saying... saying, I'm assuming, Liam, that you're saying you're not saying back to the child... Oh, you want some, you know, like yes. that really, that oh, see, yeah, exactly. I can't do it because it makes me so angry. I can't, even, I can't child, even pretend. But when the child hasn't even done it, but you're, but there's yeah. a different um, emphasis on when you're repeating what a child is saying. Exactly. And, and, and with, with correct grammar and with in a sentence structure yeah. because they're absorbing that stuff, yeah. But yeah. I'm sure I've also read research that suggests that that high-pitched voice, that... Oh. Um, especially mothers do when they're using that is actually perfectly pitched for babies. I think we hearing. call that sing song, Lisa. I'm not sure that we call that high pitched. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll have to bring that research back to us. That's right. That's okay. not your favourite bit of research, is it? <laughs> no. Yeah, and and just really, just really quickly, the other the other thing that made me thought about was there was there was another bit of research done, and I I have to put my hand up. I can't remember the specific numbers who did the research or where to find it. I We'll desperately try and find it a link to it but they did a study on the amount of um they they sort of took a group of you know well-off uh, well-educated uh, families and children and then children um existing in a lower socioeconomic um, environment and the amount of words children knew by age five and it was a staggering difference and it was correlated yeah. pretty closely with their um, future, you know, um, school results and that kind of stuff. That literally just the amount of words they were exposed to uh, and I as think young that's, children. That's the original research that um, that uh, uh, Sheila yeah. was drawing on, which was in 1995, and that and that was the Great. point was that it was amazing that it was actually kind of being replicated in the long daycare setting. Yeah. What had happened in the home? That's amazing. So you know, it's not enough just to have children in early childhood education. All right. So, Lisa, what are you bringing us? Look, mine's totally different because it's not so much um, connected with children, but it's more connected with it's about educators. And I'm sure it's actually research that everyone, hopefully, everyone that's listening to this podcast has actually participated in, but I don't know how many have gone back and interrogated the results. So what it is, is the 2013 National Early Childhood Education and Care Workforce Census. And there's another one that's happened since then, that's happened in 2016, but it takes them about a year to, um, you know, to get the results of each census out to the public. So the last one that's been published was the 2013 one. It came out in 2014. It was done by the ANU Social Research Centre for DWA, the Department of Education. At that stage, I think it was Employment and Workplace Relations. Um and it's got fascinating things in it. Or to me, they're fascinated because I'm uh, fascinating because I'm absolutely fascinated by educators and who makes up this sector. So some of the stats, like there's 153,000 plus of us working in the early education and care service sector. That's a, a fairly large chunk of people. That's across Australia. of us um, work in long daycare centres. The rest um, in – there's a large chunk in preschools, then smaller chunks in out-of-school hour care and family daycare. The median age of educators is 26 for males and 36 for females. I think um, that's because men drop out at a, a greater rate. 33% 33% of people work full-time in the sector. Um, a quarter of uh, 25% of people have worked for over 10 years and 8% have worked under a year. Um, 31% of preschool staff are over 50 and 24% of long daycare staff are under 25. of long day care staff work under three years in the sector. So, you know, that's a fairly, you know, sorry, 36% of long day care staff have worked for under three years in the sector. So it's a fairly high turnover um, profession. 
50% of long day care staff and 50, 57% of long day care staff say that the job is exceptionally stressful. And the saddest um, stat I found in there when I looked back on it today was that less than two thirds of educators would recommend working in the sector to others. Hmm. Less than two thirds? <laughs> yep, less than two thirds. <laughs> so, <laughs> how should it be used in the sector? I think that, um, you know, there's a number of ways, obviously, in workforce planning, of which we don't seem to have much of, but also in designing professional development. You know, like if those organisations that run professional development remember all the time that. Um, you know, uh, 25% of the staff of uh, 36% of long day care staff have only been in the sector for three years, then it's kind of like we need to keep going back to basics in our professional development. And if you look at the age group as well, you know, like um, that uh, huge chunk of people that are over 50 or over 55, and then another huge chunk that are under 25. You know, that they have quite different needs around things like professional development. So what would, um, would be the best kind of professional development? Did it talk about any of the did it talk about any of that sort of stuff? No, it, it's just got really basic questions, yeah, you know, like how long have you worked in the sector, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't give any understanding other than this is the stats. It doesn't go any further than that about how we should use those stats. But it's just a really rich resource of stats that I don't think the sector actually uses enough or peak organisations don't use enough when they're looking at things like workforce and professional development. When's the next one due for release? It's every three so it's, years, it, think, isn't it? It was done in 2016. It was done earlier this year. People may remember filling in that census and um, it'll be released next year. But I tried to follow that up and I discovered that both the ANU and the um, Social Research Centre aren't on Twitter and I have oh. no idea how you contact someone if they're not on Twitter. So I, had to give up I don't on think my they research. exist, Lisa. Oh. On Twitter. oh, Lisa! <laughs> you, can, you can Google mm. them, and you can you can find them. They yeah, might yeah, have that, websites. That, that would have just taken too long. If I'd gotten a human being on Twitter, I would have had an answer in <laughs> the five seconds I could allocate to finding oh. out when it would be released. But it'll come so out next year. <laughs> That's it. I think my, I'm going to be annoying. My only question, which I know the answer to, is I wish this could be done more often because you're right, the data is fantastic and it's kind of annoying to wait three years because the sector actually changes quite a lot, particularly in this National Quality Framework rollout period. It would be great to have that information like every year, but it all comes down to funding and people's ability to, to do it. So. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm asking you a question I know the well, answer to. But We can do a special workforce one when the next one's released. And, we could, and yeah. find out whether find out whether everybody still thinks it's stressful and whether still <laughs> less than two thirds of people recommend it as a, a um, recommend it as a good place to work. And and whether that proportion of educators over fifty five has shrunk because they've all now mm. resigned or retired. Yeah, retired. Retired. Yeah, retired. And who they've been replaced with. Mm. 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 All right. Interesting. It's my turn. Now I I I, I was tempted to I, like, I really enjoyed kind of thinking about what I was going to bring to the table here and I kind of thought of a few different things and some pretty you know dry stuff around um, I thought of some language stuff as well and wanted to look at maybe some brain development stuff but then I remember I, I then I thought well f favorite is probably the one that stuck with me for quite a while and this one has just I read with it's I remember it first came across it in 2014 thanks to an article in the New York Times and it's just stuck with me for a couple of reasons so Oh, so it's uh, called, it's got the very exciting title of Visual Environment, Attention, Allocation and Learning in Young Children When Too Much of a Good Thing May Be Bad. And it's published in the uh, Psychological Science, a journal for the Association of Psychological Science by Anna Fisher, Carrie Godwin and Howard 
Seltman. Um, it doesn't sound like it may be doing too much with early childhood, but what it's essentially about, the, the title in the New York Times article is much better, which is Rethinking the Colourful Kindergarten Classroom. Uh, I love this one because it, it, it taps right into something that has always frustrated and bugged me about the sector, which is our insistence on just doing things because that's the way it's always been done, and particularly in how classrooms uh, and in in all of our early learning environments are structured, which is explosions of colour, the walls completely plastered with everything we can think of, this overload of the senses for children. And it's it they're, they're often really stressful places to be in for adults, let alone children who are sort of stuck at you know at a lower level looking up at this explosion of colour. And this research is is fairly clear that that's actually not the best way for children to learn. It distracts them, it can make them stressed and it can mean they're not focusing on the learning. Whereas what they term an austere classroom, which I think is really confronting for educators, um, particularly those who have been in the sector for a long time, which is very little on the walls, very simple and structured, neutral tones of furniture, is the best way for children to learn. Um, I've been, you know, beating this drum for such a long time, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a bloody terrible interior designer. I know nothing about design and setting stuff up, but I just know that I find those places stressful. So, of course, it seems likely that children do, and I, I love this research because it basically essentially just backs up my opinion, but it it's such a – and the article – sorry, the research makes the really clear point that this is something educators can control. There's so much we can't, the, you know, funding, purchasing of resources, all this stuff, but we are in complete control of what the environment at its most basic level looks like. We decide what goes up on the wall. We decide what comes down. We decide how much is structured. And it ran a really simple, you know – the you know two different uh, kindergartens in the US one with that you know pretty standard stuff we're all used to going into and one that was very austere and the results were, were really clear that the focus and attention to learning was 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 far better um in the what they term the austere classroom so i guess i mean i guess to me the application of the sector is really clear is that we need to challenge that and we need to stop saying oh but that's the way it's always done or well that's what parents expect they want lots of stuff on the walls we need to say, look, this is this is about children's learning, and it needs to be done in this way. Um, so that's that. I I, I love it. I, I spruik it every chance I can get because I think it's so important. Is there um, anything in that about? I'm sorry to be. Um, I hope this doesn't seem like um, the wrong question to ask. But mm-hmm. was there anything in there about colour? at all yes well i think only in terms of the general approach to um we tend to uh, be go very stark primary bright colors everywhere whereas it talks more about going back to neutral uh palettes so oh liam you're so behind the time oh, am I? we used to be i've spent a lot of time in the last few weeks um hanging around corporate childcare providers websites and <laughs> large providers websites Whereas, you know, like 10 years ago, if you went into every any centre, there would have been a profusion of red, yellow, blue, you know, primary coloured plastic. Now everything looks like it's straight out of Ikea. It's, you know, like what, a pale yeah. wood. I, I think it does in the in the early ads. childhood sectors got against other woods other than <laughs> blonde woods, you know? Like, what's wrong with a good bit of Tasmanian redwood or something? Uh, it's too expensive. It's too expensive. <laughs> and I think typically it's not but about it's... eliminating that stuff, but it's about having it in, in quantities that aren't overwhelming and crazy. And the only other thing I'd say, Lisa, is you're right. But I think when – and probably speaking specifically from the Canberra experience, we've had a lot of new um, of those kind of centres start, is that's what the branding looks like and that's what it looks like on the week they open, but it usually reverts back to standard um, early childhood, let's, you know, colour the place in colour, cover the place in colour pretty quickly. <laughs> but um, I remember in the uh, in the very old days when the people who were called docs advisors, you know, they were uh, people who were essentially like assessment and rating officers, except they went around and gave guidance and advice. I know because I was one at one stage. And <gasps> um, I remember that there were some that really objected to busy, busy environments that you're talking about, Liam, and and they would um, go into the services and say, I know all of these things are a fire risk. Take them down, take them down. <laughs> and, they, and they were able to really make the environments quite no. sort of, you know, less visually busy by sort of invoking the right of the... Of so the um, 
it the wouldn't have worked if they'd come in and said, it's a learning risk, it's a learning risk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No. It's a fire risk. Get it down now. Liam, I think you'd really enjoy my experience. I live in a house that is just an absolute riot of colour, right? <laughs> it's got every colour under the sun in it. Are this the second and... time I've insulted you tonight, Lisa? <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's fine, but... I had um, an occasion where an occupational therapist had to come into the house because my daughter's had a brain injury and she came in to see if it was an appropriate place to bring my daughter to from the rehab hospital where she was. And she just walked in and said, hmm, I think this is going to be challenging for her. And I just went... You know what? If she can't cope with this, then she can't cope with me. She's got to learn how to distinguish these 20 million colours. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, sorry. Yes, I can picture that, Lisa. I think she's managed to work out, you know, what's the, the foreground and what's the I background. I think she'll be all right. She doesn't bounce into walls as much as she used to at any rate. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that was... That was good fun. I enjoyed that. Look, I think uh, as ever, look, we'd we'd love to hear what's your favourite bit of research and and why. Please feel free to get in touch with us. But um, we just before we so we've done our sort of two topics for tonight. But before we wrap up, I think we just wanted to have a really brief chat. So it's coming towards the end of the year, which means it's kind of AGM season and elections for various peak bodies and that kind of stuff. So we just wanted to have a really quick um, chat about. I guess just, you know, we talk a lot about politics and how you can engage in advocacy. And if you're, you know, if you're in an organisation that is run by, you know, a, um, a, a committee or you're, or you're part of a large peak body, this is actually a really uh, tangible and active way you can get involved is by either, you know, standing for election on a, on a, on a body or, or voting. So I think we probably just wanted to give our really quick thoughts is if that's a, you know, a choice that's in front of you in the next few weeks, maybe just give our, our two cents worth as to the kind of things you should be maybe thinking about as you approach that decision. So maybe, you know, what did you sort of want to have a chat about there, Lisa? Look, I think it's important for people to realise that they do, uh, you know, that when you join a peak body, you actually become a member of that organisation and members have the right to vote in elections. Shock horror. I think that um, a lot of services that are members of peak bodies don't actually exercise that right, and I'd urge them to. If a peak body isn't acting the way that you want it to act, then that's your chance at, at the AGM to elect people who will make that organisation work in the way that um, you want it to. I think then you have to look at what, you know, who are the sorts of people that we should vote for? And I'd urge people, you know, no matter what the organisation that they're voting for, to vote for individuals that are strong, um, very strong about the need for accessible quality childcare. Because if they're not fighting for that, then I don't think the organisations are doing what they, you know, um, what they should be doing. And if, you know, you get a chance to vote for someone, look at their history and say, does this person actually vote for access to affordable and quality childcare above all, all else? I think that's kind of my main point. Leanne, did you want to add to that? Um, I think always that you need to understand what the purpose of, um, your, any organisation that you're a member of is. And once you understand that, then you can understand who you should be putting into positions on boards and on executives there. Because if if the people who you're kind of voting in don't match the purpose of the organisation, then that, that could be an issue. But apart from that, you need to know what the purpose of any organisation is that you're a member of. Um, and who, likewise, who, who's going to be the best in that role? Who's going to uphold quality and who's going to hold children's rights central to um, any kind of mission? Because it's, it's assuming that all peak bodies are, are interested in um, quality outcomes for children. Yeah, look, I don't think I can add anything specifically to how well you two have put it, but I think the only thing I'd add is to don't underestimate your 
um, your ability to affect change by that thing. Look, it is, you know, it, it may just be one vote or it may be your decision to even stand for one of those positions. But that is how things change is, is voting and ensuring the, you know, the people with who do put children and children's rights at the central um, at the centre of um, their decisions in, in whatever position of power they're in, that does make a big difference. So, you know, if, if, if you do get a letter or an email or something on your um, in, sent to you that, you know, is asking you to vote for something, you know, seriously consider it and, and take a few minutes to to, to make a change and, and have your voice heard that way. And remember, you can give proxies. You don't have to attend, you know, to actually vote. You can give a proxy vote to somebody else. And just, you know, we need no f- look no further than what happened with America where half of the population didn't vote, didn't exercise their right to vote, to know what happens when you don't exercise that right. Mm. All right. Well, thank you both, and I hope everyone's enjoyed uh, uh, topics for discussion this week. We uh, will crack on, of course, with our recommendations for the week, and uh, we might start first with you, Lisa. What, what are you bringing for us this week? Okay, mine's kind of sad. Um, If anyone saw Four Corners on Monday night, it was about um, residential care homes for children who are um, are wards of the state. It was one of the most confronting Four Corners that I've ever seen for me. It was even more confronting when than when I discovered that we, you know, hooded children in the Northern Territory in um, juvenile detention centres. But as well as the actual, so I'd urge everyone to see it on um, on iView if they didn't see it at the time. But as well as that, they've got a very good backgrounder with article on the ABC uh, website which has got even more information of it Um, and just you know like the the key points that came out of it for me is that um, there was in the last 12 months or no in in a 12 months period where Victoria actually checked their services there were 189 incidents of alleged sexual abuse of 166 children one in three of the 500 children that were in these residential care homes at the time had been sexually abused at the home. And this was occurring in services run by both for-profit providers and by not-for-profit providers. And some of those organisations also run childcare as well. So I'd really urge everyone to read it. Yeah, I don't know how we can get things so wrong for children in Australia. It's been a I don't think we like them much, Liam. We sure don't treat them as if we like them. No, you have to start to wonder. Um, All right, Leanne, what's your uh, recommendation for this week? Uh, Okay, mine is um, from The Atlantic because I've chosen that as my new (laughs) go-to instead of the conversation because I was banned from the conversation. (laughs) No, we lifted the ban, Leanne. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We were magnanimous. Next week, next week. Um, and this is called Light Research Hasn't Slowed Pre-K Expansion. And I guess this one's just asking, plain and simple, it's in the States and it's asking, is early childhood education actually working? And it comes down to this battle of evidence, basically. Um, I think somebody has decided that it's not working and therefore it's not worth funding. But obviously there's a lot of people who are running in to say, no, you can't. You can't really say that, but the point about it is, is that uh, it hasn't. There hasn't been any slowing of the expansion of um, childcare in the states because obviously you can make quite a lot of money out of it. But also, um, it's the quality that matters. That's really what it comes down to. So, the question might be: Is early childhood education actually working? The answer is only if it's high quality. And yep. that's something we all know and agree with. Yeah. Mm. Um, my one just quickly is um, just a bit of a, I think, a win for children and young people, which um, <laughs> it seems to be fewer and fewer uh, have those happening this time, is um, South Australia, as part of um, 
well, some reports into some very bad things that happened in South Australia, has um, instituted an office for uh, the Commissioner of Children and Young People in a state-based role, which is which will sort of sit alongside um, similar roles in other states and territories, um, including here in the ACT, and the National Commissioner for Children and Young People, uh, Megan Mitchell. So, um, look, I... I Look again. People will argue about the specifics of you know will that what will that actually do? I'm always a big fan of people being in these roles because they can, to some level, hold government to account. They're independent statutory officers, so they're allowed to sort of um, yell at government, and the government sort of just have to listen. And at least you know can be some of the issues can be dragged in the light of day. So I think that's a big win for South Australian uh, children. Um, oh, I'd agree with you there, Liam. The yeah. ex-Victorian commissioner was interviewed on the ABC Four Corners last night. He was the most wonderful, compassionate mm-hmm. human being and he did the research about how many children yeah. had been abused in that state. So yeah. I'd say, yeah, let's go for them. These roles are important. And then I'm going to um, go power mad and do a separate spin-off recommendation from that one. So sorry, everyone, I get two this week. But um, it's just uh, the Australian Institute of Family Studies has a really good quick fact sheet on what the children, uh, children's commissioners and um, sometimes they're called guardians uh, in other states and territories, what they actually do. So I'd recommend just sort of reading that as well in terms of what how that actually works. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, thanks, Lisa and Leanne, for... for uh, chucking those our way um, we will as usual say if you get a chance to rate and review us on the iTunes store we will be very 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 grateful we had a fantastic review uh, this week from somebody oh, liked us somebody like everyone likes us we just need to you know they just need to have the opportunity to to, to put it into words but this is from um, iTunes had, forces people to come up with some strange names I think but it's Oz uh, Trovok so again, if I'm mispronouncing any of these, I really apologise. But um, has left a wonderful review saying um, saying that they've been waiting for the podcast for years. So I guess sorry, we we did start this year, but we would have loved to have done it a few years ago. But we're sorry you've had to wait so long. But um, apparently, loves to listen to us while driving or working at the computer. So um, and and may share with their students, which would be wonderful. Well, I think we'd love to be influencing some young minds. I can't think of anything better. Um, so thank you very much. As, as as usual, if you if you head over there and give us a rating review, we will call you out on the immediately uh, the the next episode that comes out. Um, there's a couple of other just uh, quick points I wanted to chat about as well. Uh, we released a bonus episode on Monday, which sort of was just kind of like a deleted scene from uh, episode 11. So if you haven't refreshed your podcast feed or checked out the site since last episode, um, yeah, it's only 10 minutes long and is a nice little chat about. Uh, the divisions in our politics in early childhood, which we sort of cut out just due to length of episode 11. Um, We wanted to also announce that in December, maybe as our last episode of the year or or one of our last ones, we're going to do a sort of uh, Q&A episode. So we, as part of that, we need some cues. We need some questions. So if you head to Facebook or Twitter or to uh, our site, earlyeducationshow.podbean.com, there'll be a link to a uh, just kind of like a really short online survey, which is basically just a chat chance to to chuck a question that way and we'll spend you know either half an episode or an episode um going through those we're we're really excited to to uh hear from you all and if there's anything and in is particular... there limits to the questions no like, absolutely like... not no i think look i think you know obviously generally focused on early childhood or if you just want to ask me any specific ones about doctor who i'm more than happy to spend an episode <laughs> answering those very happy to <laughs> Um, so get your questions in. We will sort of leave that open until sort of mid-December. But, yeah, we'd love to sort of hear from our listeners and, and, and please get in touch. So, But you don't need to wait till December if you want to get in touch with us before then. You can, of course, uh, get in touch with the show directly on Facebook and Twitter at both of those sites, the, the handle after the .com bit is early edu show, so early edu show. Uh, you can also at any time badger any of us on social media at any time. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Liam McNicholas. And I'm Lisa J. Bryant. And I'm Leanne M. Gibbs 3. So until we're back with you next week, thanks for listening again, and we hope you have a great weekend. So until next week, it's bye from me. And from me. And from me. Just before we go off at Liam, there's two points that I think are really interesting. One is that the – oh, I've done that again. I've said there's two <laughs> points. Yay. <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, apparently I've got a habit of always saying these two points, but there always is two points. <laughs> um, and uh, one of them is that 